Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have need of nothing to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope, the guarantee of a salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Holy Father, thank you that you've provided a way of escape from the wrath that our sin deserves by sending your Son who died in our place on the cross bearing the full penalty our sin deserves. Help those who are listening who've never embraced that, who are trying to save themselves. Help them in this hour to turn to the Lord Jesus as their only hope. Thank you, Father, that you saved us that we might live with him. Thank you that you secured us. You gave us a guaranteed certain hope that the work you began, that you will complete. But good news we acknowledge is not to hide and keep to ourselves, but it's to share. And so we pray in this new week, you would give us opportunities to open our lips up in praise and to encourage people to consider Jesus. May we be the voice peace. May we be your servant that you can use. Now, Father, as we approach the book of Revelation We pray and ask that you would help us understand it. Should Jesus tarry and we finish it, help us, our Father, to understand its implications. That you have written it not just that we might know of the future, but that we might become more like Jesus Christ. I need your help as I study each week. I need your help and mercy and grace and the anointing of the Spirit as I seek to present it. So I ask you in Jesus' name that you would be glorified and we thank you. Amen. Take God's word, would you? Turn to the book of Revelation chapter 1. If you're joining us for the first time, this is the start of a brand new series. Typically at Community Bible Church, we take entire books of the Bible and we go through them chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And what a timely uh, study for the book of Revelation. If we're not living in the time frame described in this book, we are certainly living on the threshold of that time frame. So many of the pieces of the puzzle are coming together. And if you are sensitive to God's prophetic word, you can see that. Many of you, think about it, many of you who are alive have witnessed in your lifetime the rebirth of the nation of Israel, a nation that was destroyed in 70 AD, a nation that ceased to exist for nearly 2,000 years, but a nation that God said would have a rebirth before the Christ comes a second time. Think about the rise of Russia and their uh, status now as a world power, and their domination in the Middle East, and their allegiance with Syria, two countries that the Bible speaks of prophetically at the end of time. Think about the awakening of China, a massive army as the Bible speaks of the kings of the East that will come and attack Israel. 
think about the convergence of a number of nations in Europe. For God predicted that at the end of time, that there will be a United States of Europe that the Antichrist will come from. And then think about the moral climate of our day. Think about the resurgence of militant Islam, the hatred and the violence that comes with it. The Bible speaks of the Arab nations of the world coming against Israel in a great war. Think about the sodomy of our day. I told the people in the last service, I didn't even, I had to ask my mother, I think I was either 12 or 13, what a homosexual was. I I had no idea. It was a word that people didn't even speak when I was a child. It was virtually a swear word. But now it's an everyday word. Think about the moral bankruptcy of the day and the hour in which we live. These are all parts of a jigsaw puzzle that God is putting together as he sets the stage for the return of his son from heaven. So in the coming months, I think you'll see that as we get the big picture of the book of Revelation. I want to begin this morning by reading the first three verses. So if you have a Bible, follow along as I read. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near." Now, as you can see on your note-taking outline, I have three objectives for us this morning. It was Aristotle who said, like archers, we shall stand a far greater chance of hitting the target if we can see it. So I hope to delineate the lines of the target this morning. Three critical objectives. First, I want us to think about the date that this book was written, why that's important, and the human author, and why it's important for us to know that. Second, We're going to try to get an overview, an outline of the book, to see the big picture of Revelation. Because if you can see how a book is outlined in the big picture of a book, the details will take on so much more meaning. And then third, we're going to look at, by way of introduction, four approaches as to how people have interpreted the book of Revelation in the history of the world. A lot of Christians are frustrated. They think, well, it can't be understood And many times because of some approaches that have been taken, only one approach is correct, as we will see. And then I want us to examine the first three verses. So you know where we're going. If you fall asleep or daydream, at least when you wake up, you'll know where we are, all right? Now let's get started with a few preliminary thoughts here. Whenever you read a book of the Bible, you want to ask, who wrote the book? You want to find out what you can about the author and the date, because that's very, very significant. The author, of course, as this slide reminds us, is the Apostle John. He identifies himself three times in the opening chapter and then again in the last chapter. And the date is not a mystery. The church fathers, those were the leaders, the early church fathers, then there's the late church fathers, but the early church fathers, those men who gave leadership to the church after the apostles died, left us a lot of writing. And their writing is unanimous that the Apostle John wrote this book. John, of course, led to Christ a man by the name of Polycarp, who becomes a leader in one of the churches that we're going to study in the second and third chapters. And he, in turn, leads to Christ a man by the name of Arrhenius. 
Arrhenius said this, John wrote a revelation in the 14th year of the Roman emperor Domitian. Now, we know from history that Domitian reigned from 81 to 96 AD. So the traditional date that all the church fathers agreed upon was 95 AD. That's a very accurate, firm date. In fact, it's not until the 3rd century that a man by the name of Dionysus of Alexander denied Johannine authorship, said John didn't write it. It was written after he died, and he argued that it wasn't in John's writing style. Well, if you read John's gospel, he wrote five books in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. If you read those books, you discover that it is consistent in terms of his vocabulary, but no, is it the same style? Of course not. This is apocalyptic literature. This is a very different kind of literature. And so I won't go through all his dumb reasons, and nor will I go through the dumber thoughts of modern scholarship. People want to attack Revelation in our day because they do not like the implications that this book has on their life. Now, when you think about John, it's important to think about how he is described in the Bible. In his own gospel, he's called the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. For instance, in John 13, 23, we read, there was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, in John 19, we read, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Actually, five times over in the Gospel of John, he's described as the disciple whom Jesus loves. Twice in the last chapter, he calls himself that, and then he lets the cat out of the bag, not to be braggadocious, but because the Spirit of God leads him to write, this is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. Now, if you were with us when we studied the Gospel of John, we saw by process of elimination there was only one man named John, namely the Apostle John, who could have written the Gospel of John. And again, he wrote John's Gospel, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, in the Revelation, five books. Now, why is he called the beloved disciple and the disciple whom Jesus loved? Did that mean that Jesus loved John more than Peter or one of the other 12? Of course not. But as you study the Scripture carefully, you discover that John and Jesus were first cousins. And the evidence for that comes in two parts, which in turn comes in two parts. Four critical passages. Let me give them to you. You can go home, look them up this week, or you can go back and listen to the introductory message to John where I walk you through that. John 19.25, Mark 15.40, Matthew 27.56, in John or uh, in Matthew 4:21. Now, if you read those ca- passages carefully in their context, you will discover that the Lord Jesus' mother Mary was the aunt of the apostle John and his brother James, which made them first cousins, technically first half cousins, of course, because Jesus did not have a human father. And so John being a first cousin to Jesus, no doubt grew up with Jesus. Now remember, John the Apostle lived longer than any of the other 12. He's the last apostle to die. It's very possible, possible that Jesus and he were playmates as they grew up. Did Jesus play as a little boy? Of course he did. He grew up just like any other child, had friends and 
And it's very possible that John was his best friend growing up. Or maybe Jesus was a little older physically than John, and he was like a little nephew. In either case, he developed a special kinship for him. And the reason I even raise that is because when John gives us this revelation and records it for us, this half-cousin who had this close relationship with Jesus during his earthly life falls at his feet like a dead man because he understands that Jesus is Lord. Now, beyond the date and the human author, let's think about the outline for just a second. Let's climb a contextual tree and see if we can get the big picture of the book of Revelation. Now, normally, I would tell you to outline a book, you need to read it over five or six times from beginning to end, and it's only usually on the fifth or sixth reading you begin to see how all the parts fit together. And I would encourage you to read the book of Revelation this week if you haven't done it. You can do it in about 65 minutes in one sitting. But with that said, with this particular book, you don't need to read and reread it to discover the outline because God gives us the outline in the book of Revelation itself. It's kind of like Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. There Jesus said right before his ascension, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's Acts chapters 1 through 7. You shall be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. That's Acts 8 through 12. And then he reminds them in this prophecy, and it's all fulfilled, you will be witnesses even to the remotest part of the earth. That's Acts 8, 13 to 28. Well, in like fashion, we read in Revelation 1, 19, therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Now, according to verse 19, and as you read the book this week, you will see there are three sections and they follow perfectly according to verse 19 of chapter 1. Chapter 1 describes the past. Chapters 2 and 3 describe the present. Chapters 4 through 22 describes the future. I have no doubt that you could further subdivide the book of Revelation, but that's the divinely given outline. And I think God gives us this outline because it distracts you from any artificial or man-made interpretation of this book. It will help you. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the past, the things which are, that's the present, the things which will take place in the future. So here's a book chart. You might want to fill it in. After the introduction that's found in the first eight verses, it will take us two weeks to get through that. We'll just do three verses today. Um, In verses 9 through 20 of chapter 1, you have a picture of the things which you have seen. And he describes the Lord Jesus in that exalted, resurrected body. The things past are those things which the Apostle John had seen and recorded for us in verses 9 to 19. And then verse 20, which is a transition verse into the next chapter. Chapters 2 and 3 are the things that are. And he describes seven literal actual churches that were present in the first century when he writes the book of Revelation. Then beginning in chapter 4, the end of verse 19 says, after these things... That's the last three words of 119. The first three words of chapter 4, verse 1 is, after these things, metatata. And so from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 22, he describes the future. Or to say it differently, chapter 1 is about the Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 are about the church. Chapters 4 through 22 about the consummation. He'll write about things future. 
we will see, beginning in chapter 4, there's no more mention of the church because the church has been raptured. The church has taken off the earth and the worst time in human history begins to unfold. So just kind of keep that outline in your mind. You see Christ in his glory in the opening chapter. You see Christ in his church in chapters 2 and 3. And then finally Christ in his judgment. And as you read and reread this, you're going to see, I think, two principal reasons why God chose to give us an outline for the book of Revelation. First, to remind us that the primary purpose of the coming tribulation period is to bring Israel to faith in Jesus as Lord. When he came to his own, his own did not receive him. For the most part, as a nation, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But God is not done with Israel. Just as he used them the first time to bring Jesus into the world, he is going to use Israel, the Bible says, a second time to bring him back. And it's during that seven-year period, what the Old Testament calls the time of Jacob's trouble, what Jesus calls the Great Tribulation, when Jews across the planet are going to realize that Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, is the Messiah. In fact, Hosea chapter 5, in describing that coming period, said this. The prophet wrote, speaking of Messiah, I will go away and return to my place. Messiah was here, but he's gone back to heaven. Until, until they, the people of Israel, acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And so one of the chief functions of what we studied in Daniel, the 70th week, the final seven years, what the New Testament calls the Great Tribulation, is not only to give Gentiles who have never heard the gospel before a final chance to repent, most of whom will not, but it will bring Israel to their knees and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And secondly, I think God gives us an outline because it's the most logical, clear, and consistent way in which to interpret this book. It just keeps you out of a lot of trouble. All right? Now, beyond the author and the outline, let's talk about four approaches in the history of Christianity. And this is important, so listen. It may seem theological to you, but you need to listen because this is going to help you to see why there are so many wacky and interesting interpretations when it comes. You can see the, there are various approaches just as you read different modern authors. For instance, there's a series that Tim LaHaye, who recently went to heaven, he wrote the Left Behind series. And of course, he takes a futuristic view of the book of Revelation. He sees that the events that are written are yet to take place. There's another popular man. He's called, I think he calls himself the Bible man or something. It's kind of a talk, call and talk show like the Bible line. His name is Hank Hanegraaff. He wrote a book called The Apocalypse Code. And he said all of the events in the book of Revelation, with the exception of the literal, physical, visible return of Jesus from heaven, all took place before 70 AD, primarily in and around 70 AD with the fall of Jerusalem. So he criticizes theologians like LaHaye or pastors like myself for taking too literal approach to interpreting the book of Revelation. So let me explain the four different approaches in the history of the church that people have taken. The first is what we are calling the idealist view. Sometimes you will hear it titled the spiritualist view. And the idealist view basically says that the book of Revelation is written to help us to understand the struggle between good and evil. 
They um, say the book of Revelation is not about the past. It's not about the future. It's about no time at all. It's just a, a series of spiritual principles in which we can live life. So this allegorical way of approaching the scriptures, and some did it only with the book of Revelation and not with the rest of the Bible, but some approached all the scriptures like this. There was a fellow by the name of Origen in the second century who allegorically interpreted the book of Revelation, and then St. Augustine in the fourth century really made it a prominent view. And so, for instance, the tribulation period that is written of in the book of Revelation, they said, well, that's the internal conflict from within between, you know, sin and the pain and the consequences that it brings, not an actual literal event. Um, Some allegorical people, especially liberal Protestant theologians, say there's not a literal second coming from heaven, that Jesus just comes in our hearts and he rises up in our hearts and towards the end he'll rise up in more people's hearts. This is why it's important when you join a church to define terms because people mean all kinds of things. They can read the same historic creed and mean totally different from what it originally was intended to mean. So they refer to the Bible as inspired like Shakespeare, or it's inspired in spots, and you have to be inspired to spot the spots. That's why you've got churches debating over certain moral issues. Or uh, Jesus is the Son of God, and we're all sons and daughters of God, but he's not God the Son. That's how they reason. Or Jesus will not actually come from heaven to judge the living and the dead. He just rises up in our hearts. It's a lot of mishmash. And so the Antichrist is not a real person. He just pictures a satanically inspired political system that fights the church. The problem with this view, the problem with the allegorical interpretation of Scripture is, number one, you make the Bible mean whatever you want it to mean. Let me tell you what it means. And you get on some drug maybe and come up with some psychedelic interpretation. But number one, why don't I believe that? Because it denies, first of all, the model that God left within Scripture on how to interpret Scripture. For instance, when we're studying the book of Daniel, the ninth chapter, it opened with Daniel reading a prophecy written by Jeremiah that the people of Israel would be carried to Babylon for 70 years. And he's towards right the end of that 70 years. He, he believed that that was a literal, actual prophecy. When you read the apostles in the New Testament interfacing with the Old Testament, when you read the Lord Jesus intertwining his teachings with the Old Testament, he applies it literally. He literally interprets the Bible. He doesn't take an allegorical approach to the Scripture. So the no-time view is a lot of nonsense. But there are some people today, especially in liberal Protestantism, that still teach this. Second, There's what we call the preterist view. Praetor is the Latin word for past. And you know there are a lot of terms like the one written on the front of the pulpit, like the five in the stained glass behind us, that come from Latin. Why? Because for a thousand years, Latin was the principal translation that the church read. Praetor means past. And so the preterist view takes the book of Revelation or even the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, and they said it was all fulfilled in the past. Now, there are two kinds of preterists. There are what you call a full preterist and a partial preterist. A full preterist says everything in Revelation has been fulfilled, even the second coming that we're actually living right now in the new eternal state. 
Well, if we're living in heaven, God must have put me in the ghetto because it just, just doesn't seem right to me. But most of the preterists were what we call partial preterists. And they say everything has been fulfilled in the past with the exception of Jesus' physical return from heaven. Now, this view was started by a Roman Catholic Jesuit by the name of Luis de Alicar. And he came up with this view in response to Luther and Calvin, who held to a third view that we'll look at in a moment, who said that the Pope in their day was the Antichrist. And so, not wanting the Pope to be the Antichrist, since he obeyed the Pope, he made everything in Revelation as having been fulfilled way back yonder. And again, this goes against all sound scholarship. Number one, it denies the date of Revelation that no one debated for centuries, that it was written in the 90s, not before 70 AD. In addition, when you read the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, the preterist interpretation indicates that um, these, uh, it just doesn't fit. These are not first-generation churches in chapters 2 and 3. These are second-generation churches. Think about it. One of the seven churches that he's going to mention is the church at Ephesus. Now, Paul writes the book of Ephesians to this church. And when you read Ephesians, you discover it's one of the healthiest churches in all of the New Testament. But when you come to the Revelation, you discover that it's not all that healthy. That this was a people who had abandoned, left their first love. And Jesus warns them of a heresy that didn't even exist in Paul's day. And so if the book of Revelation was all fulfilled 70 AD or before, Paul, which wrote Ephesians closer to that date, it just doesn't match. Or take this church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. As far as we know, that church didn't even exist when Paul walked upon the earth. Or take the church of Laodicea. Three times, Paul commends the church at Laodicea in the book of Colossians. He wrote Colossians around 62 AD. But Jesus rebukes the church at Laodicea. Why? Because it is a second-generation church. And so the preterist view does not, by any stretch, fit the rest of the New Testament in the historical setting. Another problem with this view is that the events that are described in the Olivet Discourse and that are described in the book of Revelation have no match whatsoever. For instance, when Jesus described his second coming from heaven, he said in Matthew chapter 24, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So Hank Hanegraaff, a preterist, said, well, this is a description, not of the second coming of Christ, but the Roman army advancing against Jerusalem in 70 A.D., well, the problem with that is, number one, the Roman army didn't advance east to west. They advanced west to east, and their attack was not sudden like lightning from heaven, a flash. It was actually a three-year siege from 67 to 70 A.D. Not to mention Titus never fulfilled what Jesus calls in Matthew 24, which we will see explained in the book of Revelation, the abomination of desolation. Titus didn't go into the temple and present himself as a god. In fact, the temple was destroyed in the siege. It was burned to the ground and every rock was pried apart to get the gold just as Jesus prophesied. And so you have to allegorize and spiritualize a lot. But preterists basically see the book of Revelation as a history book. 
And this position, uh, which comes out of Roman Catholicism, is held by Hank Hanegraaff, R.C. Sproul, and a bunch of other people I won't mention. It does the Bible injustice. Remember, in describing the time frame that we're going to study in the Revelation, Jesus said this, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. The preterist view denies that. It overlooks that there is coming a time that had God himself not intervened, no one on earth would have survived. Now, there's a third view. It's called the historist view. It's what we might call the present time view. The historist view teaches that the book of Revelation has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled during the church age. That sometime during the last 2,000 years, it is being fulfilled. It's not over yet in their mind, but to come up with a historical correlation between what you read in Revelation with past history, you have to have a really creative imagination. In other words, all the symbols in the book of Revelation represent the course of history. The historists would uh, make various popes, leaders of certain movements that you're going to describe, uh, the French Revolution, Charlemagne, they'd see all these guys in the book of Revelation. So the locusts, for instance, uh, they refer to monks and friars. Muhammad, he's a picture of the fallen star. Elizabeth I, she's the first bold judgment. Uh, Adolf Hitler, he is the rider on the red horse. And on and on and on and on it goes. Dr. John Walford, who is the president of Dallas Seminary when I was there as a student, he would remind us that there are no two expositors of this particular view who can come up with the exact same position. So the method of interpretation is very shaky. There's no precedent for it anywhere in the Bible. Not to mention that virtually all of their interpretation focuses on the Western church and it totally ignores born-again Christians in Asia and on the East. But it's been held by people like Luther or Calvin and Swingley and Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and Spurgeon. And you can see how Luther and Calvin would be propelled to this view because they wanted to make the Pope the Antichrist. So the Pope in their day, Westminster Confession of Faith, when it talks about the Pope being the Antichrist, and it may very well be that he will be the leader of this church that we're going to study. But they said the, anti, the Pope in their day was the literal Antichrist because of the historic interpretation. But driving this interpretation is what's known as replacement theology. You say, what's that? Replacement theology says that the church has replaced Israel. And it comes out of a really anti-Semitic spirit. When you go to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, so, so to speak, in Israel, it's embarrassing because when you walk in the first exhibit, are quotes by people like St. Augustine and some of the awful things they said. Luther said some awful things about the Jews. Calvin said some awful things about the Jews. Terrible things. But replacement theology said God is done with the Jew. Roman Catholics came up with it. They said we are the chosen people, the Roman Catholic Church. The Reformers put a different spin on it. They said the institution of Rome is not the chosen people. It's all born-again Christians. But it was still replacement theology. But God made some promises. We will study them. We study them in Daniel. We'll study them again in Revelation. They were unconditional that God is going to keep concerning the Jewish people. And he will use Israel 
to bring Jesus back from heaven. It is not by accident that God has gathered the Jewish people back in the land. When they overtook the land in 1948, there were 600,000 Jews there. There's over 7 million there today. There's only, depending on who you read, somewhere between 12 and 14 million Jews on the planet. But that little speck of land, the sign of Delaware, with a little speck of people in comparison to 7.6 billion, is the nation God will use to bring Christ's return. The fourth view, which most evangelical Bible-believing Christians hold to today, is called the futurist view. And they basically take a straightforward, normal reading of the Scripture. Futurists apply a literal approach to interpreting Revelation, just like we took a literal approach as did Jesus, as did Daniel to interpreting the prophet Daniel. And so in chapters 4 through 19, they would say, no, that's a literal seven-year period known as the tribulation, which Jesus quotes. He quotes the prophet Daniel, and he links it to his second coming. The seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments are actual judgments that are yet to come. The, 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 the political leader called the Antichrist in Revelation 13 is a real person yet to come. In chapter 17, that one world religion is a real one world religion, a false church yet to come. And in chapters 19 and 20, when Jesus comes back from heaven, he will literally come back from heaven and rule and reign upon the earth for a thousand years and create, as chapters 21 and 22 teaches, a new heaven and a new earth on which the new Jerusalem, where people go today when they die, that will literally come down and become the capital of this whole ball of wax we might call heaven. And so they take what Revelation 119 says, the things which shall take place after these things. And so when you read the book of Revelation, 333 of the 404 verses deal with the future. And so if you apply just a literal interpretation to Revelation which is the way in which the writers of the New Testament interpreted Scripture. God left a model within the Bible on how to approach the Scripture. You can come to no other conclusion. So we argue for a literal or a plain interpretation. And I prefer the word plain interpretation because sometimes when people ask you, well, do you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible? They don't recognize what we mean by that. But very often, of course, when, you know, I see these uh, talk show hosts and they corner some guy and they say, well, do you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible? What they are really saying is you don't believe that the moral dictates in the Bible actually apply today, do you? Literally. Because I want to affirm transgenderism as a way of life, or I want to affirm homosexuality as a way of life, or I want to live in my adultery or my fornication and judge not lest you be judged. And they argue against plainly interpreting the Scripture. Though you have to literally interpret their words when they interview you. But oh no, when you read the Scripture, you can't do that. You just discount it. Now let me say I prefer to call it today a plain interpretation because futurists recognize laws of grammar. The so-called literalist does not deny figurative language. But figurative language does not justify an allegorical interpretation of the Bible. Unless the Bible says something is an allegory, you shouldn't interpret it as an allegory. And let me just say parenthetically, a good rule of thumb 
is if it's new, it's not true. If someone reads the Bible and they see something that no one else has seen in 2,000 years, I can promise you they've misunderstood the text. Now, some will attack the futurist view and they say, oh, the rapture view, that's a new doctrine. We're going to blow that straw man up with spiritual dynamite before we are done. So this position takes a straightforward approach to interpreting the Scripture. Now, let me just say parenthetically, one of the reasons so many wacky interpretations are made over Revelation is because of the Old Testament in Revelation. There are 404 verses in Revelation. 300 of them are direct references to the Old Testament. Now, John never once says, Isaiah says, or uh, Hosea says and introduces an Old Testament quote, though if you have the New American Standard, you will see when there is a direct quote in large typeset as you do in other books of the Bible. But there are many allusions. Oh yeah, I remember reading about that in Moses. Not quoting, but just a, a, a picture that comes out of the Old Testament. And because today people don't know the Old Testament they have trouble understanding the book of Revelation. But Revelation becomes a blessing because the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the second coming of Messiah sometimes found in the same verse. We study that in Daniel. Sometimes in a single verse, you'd have the first and second comings together. But they're scattered in the Torah and the prophets and the writings. The beauty of Revelation is God takes all of these Old Testament prophecies and he puts them in chronological order for you so you can see how they will unfold. And so 24 different books of the Old Testament are quoted in the book of Revelation. There's 13 references to Genesis, for instance, 27 from Exodus, 43 from Psalms, 79 from Isaiah, 53 from Daniel, and on and on and on I could go. So much of how to interpret Revelation is just to apply the same principle of interpretation that God uses in the Old Testament. How did God fulfill the prophecies for the first coming of, the, of Jesus? Literally. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. What does that mean? Bethlehem. I mean, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Every single one of the 333 prophecies for the first coming of Christ were literally fulfilled. And to come up with some new hermeneutic, new principle of interpretation for the New Testament is absolute nonsense. All right? That's by way of introduction. It's important. You might want to go back if this is kind of heavy for you and, and uh, replay it at searchthescriptures.org. Now, three simple truths from the first three verses. That's as far as we'll get today. I thought you were going to talk about the 144,000 and the Antichrist today. Hang around for a year. We'll get there, okay? First, we want to consider the central person of the revelation. The central person. Let's read again the opening verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Stop right there. I want you to notice that the title of the verse is singular. The title of this book is singular and not plural. Often we hear believers or unbelievers or occasionally a pastor took me to lunch about a year ago. He said, I'm going to teach the book of Revelations. I thought, I'm not sure he's read the first verse. It's not Revelations. It's Revelation. It's a singular noun in Greek. It's one Revelation. There is a unified content, a lot of visions and symbols, but it's all unified under one unveiling, on one revelation. The Greek word is apocalypsis. Say apocalypsis. See, you all know Greek. You're scholars. It's fantastic. What does the word apocalypsis mean? It means to unveil. 
It means to take something that is hidden and unveil it. Interestingly, the book of Revelation is a closed book to many people when God actually wants to unveil Jesus Christ in this book. This book is not entitled The Mystery of Jesus Christ. It's not called The Puzzle of Jesus Christ. It's called literally The Unveiling of Jesus Christ or The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And yet to many, it seems like a closed book because of the way it has been abused with a faulty principle of interpretation. Now, apocalypsis means to unveil. Maybe a good picture is, uh, you know, you go to some unveiling. There's some statue of some famous person, and it's all draped in cloth, and, and then they pull the cloth off and they unveil it. God is going to unveil Jesus Christ in a way that you've never seen him in his earthly life here in this book, The Revelation. Now, there have been some faulty titles that have been given to the book. The Geneva Bible of 1599, which some translations of the King James followed. In fact, if you have a King James Bible, there are three different titles you will read depending on who published your King James Bible. Some will call it the Revelation of St. John the Divine. By divine, it's not a word in this century like God. Divine meant theologian. Uh, back in uh, that day. So, uh, the revelation of St. John the Divine. Or some translations of the King James say, the revelation of St. John. Most publishers today just say, the revelation of Jesus Christ, because that comes right out of the first line. Now, understand, the uh, book titles are not inspired by God. They're not in the original any more than the chapter and verse divisions are. They're put there by publishers to help us find our way around the Bible. So like some of the titles in the Jewish Bible are different from our English Bible. In our English Bible, we call the first book Genesis. It comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Jews call it Barashit, the first word in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. I have a, in my study a King James Bible that says the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews uh, in a King James Bible. Paul didn't write Hebrews, I hate to tell him. Uh, we don't know for certain who wrote Hebrews, but we know for certain Paul didn't write it based on the information that is found there. So this is not a revelation of John the Divine. He's not saying, we're going to tell you in this book all about St. John the Divine. No, this book is about Jesus. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. He's the hero of this book. In fact, he's the hero of the whole Bible, all 66 books. It's about Jesus. The revelation, it's a genitive. Some of you had modern English when you were in high school, which was a failure in the American system. You needed to learn real English. When I went to seminary, I discovered I got to go back and learn real English grammar to understand Greek grammar. But this is a possessive thing. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He owns it. Because it is about him. And what is interesting is not only is Jesus revealed, we will see that he is doing the revealing. Let's read a little bit further. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. God the Father gave this revelation to God the Son. A careful reader is going to ask, in what sense? Was God the Father showing the omniscient, glorified Son of God something he didn't obviously know? Obviously not, because he is omniscient. So in what sense did God give it? Now remember within the Trinity, God affirms the equality of Father, Son, and Spirit. 
But while they are equal, they are given different roles, just like in a marriage. A man is equal to his wife, but he is called the leader. He is called the head of the home. So, for instance, when Paul describes that truth in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And so within the Trinity itself, the Father takes the leadership role. With that said, he gives this revelation to Jesus Christ because as we study Revelation, we're going to see that Jesus is going to enact the truth that is here. He's going to be the mediator of these truths. He's going to dispense the judgments that are described in this great book. Let's read further. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show. Again, this is an unveiling. God wants you to see something. To show who? To show his bondservants. Now, the apostle John calls himself a bondservant. And then the plural is used here to describe Christians at large. We are bondservants. So if you are the Lord's bondservant this morning, if you've been saved by grace through faith, God the Father gave permission to God the Son for you to read and understand the book of Revelation. John describes himself as a bondservant, and he describes us as that way. It's the word doulos. It's not the word diaconist that is usually translated servant. It's the word doulos that is translated slave or bond slave. But understand, when the New Testament applies this to believers, it's not an involuntary slavery like we had in America, which was an abomination to God. It is a voluntary slavery. Understand, in Rome, when the Roman culture would take over people, they didn't put everybody in prison but they made them slaves. You could be a doctor, a lawyer, a scholar, a a tradesman, and you would be assigned to a Roman family. That's why in the early church, you have believers and unbelievers together where one is the master and the other is the slave, and instruction is given because you're assigned slaves by the Roman government. But unlike the slavery that we found in America, the slavery that John describes was a voluntary slavery. And it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Most of you know the Old Testament was written in Greek, I mean in Hebrew and Aramaic, almost all Hebrew, few chapters in Aramaic. But because most Jews lost their ability to speak Hebrew, they had a Greek translation of the Bible. Most of us this morning aren't reading the Greek New Testament. We're reading our English Bible because that's our lingua franca, that's our language. So when you go back to the Greek translation, you see this word illustrated. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 15. Moses wrote, if your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, and I won't go into that, why they did that, but then he shall serve you six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally from your flock and from your threshing floor and from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day, it shall shall come about if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you in your household since he fares well with you. In the parallel text, it says in Exodus, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, 
my, uh, and I will not go out as a free man, then what were you to do? Look, listen to verse 17 of Deuteronomy 15. Then you shall take an awl and place it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your servant forever. There's the word doulos. It speaks of a voluntary slavery. Some of your translations don't render it uh, slave, but bond slave, because they want you to see this is a voluntary slavery. Paul says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, you are to glorify God in your body. So this book is not simply a book about the future. This is written to God's bond slaves. And by the time you are done and you see the unveiling of the Lord Jesus, not only are you saved by grace, and in that sense, we're all bond slaves. And if you're here today and you've never been born again, Revelation is going to be extremely difficult for you to understand. Because you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you will help illuminate. I'm not saying it's easy to understand. It's the meat of the word. But there's something for everyone in every sermon. When I preach a sermon, it's like math. You teach a child his numbers, you teach someone else calculus and everything in between. I have to, as a pastor, feed people who are on the calculus level of the Bible, and I have to feed people who are learning their numbers and everything in between. And if you will come with an open heart, God will speak to you every week, I promise you. I'm learning every week. I feel like I'm just in geometry right now. I haven't even reached calculus in my years of the study of the Scripture. But we need to study the Word of God. But please understand, what God wants to do is He wants you to grow in that desire to be a bond slave. He is going to invite you to the doorpost as he unveils the Lord Jesus where you say, Lord Jesus, I am your slave. I am here to obey your will. Now remember, everyone in this room is a slave of some type. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. So reading further into the verse, he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his bondservants by his angel to his bondservant, John. So what does it mean to be a bondservant? It does not mean his will rather than my will, but it does mean his will is my will. Out of love and appreciation, You surrender yourself to Jesus. You are not only saved by grace, but you are to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Because you grow in grace, you learn to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's what the grace of God does. It's like Paul on the road to Damascus. He says, what shall I do, Lord? Not what would others have me to do, Lord? Not, Lord, what would, uh, not, not, but, Lord, what would you have me to do? I am your doulos, your bond slave. Not what others would do, not what others would have me to do, but what would you have me to do, Lord? And so John is going to unfold Christ for us that we might grow in our love for him and our appreciation of him, that we will grow in our slavery towards him. And again, if you are an unbeliever, 
This book won't make much sense to you and you would be wise to respond to that which you know and call upon Christ in faith. Because you see, a natural man, and that's the way we come into this world, he does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He doesn't have the spiritual equipment to appraise and understand them. Let's read further into the verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. The thoughtful reader will, of course, ask, what do you mean by soon? After all, this was written some 2,000 years ago. It seems to me that very little has taken place. Please understand that the translation soon, or in some of your Bibles, quickly or shortly, is from the Greek word taxis. And the word does not mean soon in terms of time. It means in a short period of time. In other words, once the events begin to unfold, these future events in the book of Revelation, they're going to happen very quickly, one after another. The word taxis, we get our word tachometer from it. If you grew up in the 70s and you thought you had a cool car, you would put a tachometer up there in the steering column, you know, and it showed your RPMs. Now, I know that's standard equipment today, but people would do it. I don't know. I think they thought their car went faster or something. But anyway, uh, it describes speed. You could translate it quickly, suddenly, that when the events happen, they will happen very speedily. Let's keep reading. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show him to his bondservants the things which must take place soon. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant. Now, you see the word communicated. Most of you are using the New American Standard. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, come tonight to meet the pastor. You will get a beautiful $70 Bible courtesy of a generous anonymous family in our church. But you will see a little footnote out there, communicated, and it will give you a more literal reading. In fact, that's the way the King James renders it, signify. Now, if you don't have a Bible and you come to church and you study Revelation, you're going to be lost. You don't know, you're going to not know which way is up. You'll get 20% when you could get 90% out of this sermon. So bring a Bible to church. I know some of you have been to churches your whole life, you didn't need one. You need one here. It's important. Communicated, signify. You see the word signify out there in the margin? It refers to signs or symbols. It's a word that John loves to use in his gospel. He speaks about the signs or miracles. He doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. There are four words in the New Testament for miracle. And John uses the word samion. It's a specialized word. It means a miracle with a message behind it. And John uses the verb and the noun throughout the revelation to describe these signs, these pictures. And so he is telling us that God gave this revelation through signs and symbols, but they have a meaning behind them. So for example, in Revelation chapter 12, the devil is called the great dragon. And with his long tail, he sweeps away a third of the stars out of heaven. Now, those are symbols, but you will see within the Revelation and the rest of the Bible, those symbols are interpreted, and you discover that the stars in that passage are fallen demon angels, and uh, well, like when you're in Revelation 13, for instance, there's a beast that is coming up out of the sea. When you, when you see that word beast, you shouldn't think of some monster like Godzilla. Uh, the sea and the beast are symbols that are interpreted within the rest of the Bible, Sometimes a person will ask me, well, pastor, do you interpret the Bible uh, literally or symbolically? And my answer is yes. I, I, I do both. 
For instance, when uh, the Bible calls Satan a great red dragon, it uses that symbol to describe his ferocious and cruel nature. It doesn't mean that he's a, a literal dragon, and nor should you conclude, well, that's only a symbol, therefore there must be no devil. No, you want to ask, what does the symbol stand for? And then you literally believe it. So please understand that a, a symbolic interpretation does not deny a literal belief in the Word of God. You find out what the symbol means. And again, this is one of the reasons Revelation is challenging. Because nearly 75% of the book is an illusion from the Old Testament where the symbols are actually described. And this is why we did Daniel before we came to Revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And you will notice here, there's five stages of transmission given in this opening verse. From the Father, to the Son, to an angel, to the Apostle John, to his church, as we read it today. The revelation of Jesus Christ given to the Apostle John by his angel. We've seen this already, like in the book of Daniel, where the angel Gabriel came and gave Daniel the vision. So God will sometimes transmit his word, as Paul says in Galatians, via an angel. And in this case, he does it with the revelation. But this is about literal people and events that are described in symbols. And before we're done, you're going to see why God used symbols to describe, to signify this book. All right, now, it's all about Jesus. That's the central person. You still with me? Stay awake now. Come on now. All right, secondly, the clear purpose. We're almost done. The clear purpose of Revelation. Verse 2 says, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So the chief characteristic of this book is that it reveals not Messiah's earthly life, but his ascended life in heaven. All that he saw, the one who is in heaven. And so John is going to help us to see Jesus in heaven as our advocate, as our exalted, glorified, coming king. Now, Christ has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yet, um, if all we had was the Gospels, then you would just see Jesus as he walked upon this earth. But as we will see next week, we will see him in his glorified body. God wants to take him from the dusty roads of Galilee, and he wants you to see him as the exalted sovereign Lord there in heaven. You only see him for a brief moment in the Gospels at the transfiguration as the glorified king. But you will see him so differently all the way through the revelation. The first time he came, he came to a crucifixion. The second time he comes, he will come to a crown. The first time he came, he came to a tree to be nailed to it. The second time he comes, he will come to a throne to sit on it. The first time he came, we studied it last week, Pilate was his judge. When he comes again, Jesus will judge Pilate. He will judge all the living and the dead. The first time he came, he came in shame. The second time he comes, he is coming in splendor. The first time he came, he came to redeem us. The second time he comes, he comes to reign over us. The first time he came, he came as a servant. The next time he comes, he comes as a sovereign. He will come as Lord of lords and King of kings. 
He is the sovereign Lord and you are going to see him in the revelation in a way maybe that you've never seen him before. He is not only the justifier, he is the judge. He is not only the redeemer, he is the ruler. He is not only the lamb of God, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He is the central person of the revelation. The clear purpose of the revelation is to reveal him finally. The comforting promise of the revelation. What a promise God gives us found here in verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Now, Revelation is a pretty amazing book, and it has an incredible challenge. It basically says, read me, I'm special. And if you read it, you will receive a special blessing. Now, there are many general admonitions all the way through the Bible to read the Scriptures and the benefits that come from reading it. But this is the only book that admonishes you to read this book specifically such that you will be blessed. Now, this blessing is given on three levels. Don't miss it. Blessed is he who reads. You should underscore that. And those who hear, underscore the word hear, the words of this prophet, and heed. Read, hear, and heeds. Blessed is the one who reads. Now, initially, that would certainly be in the first century for the lector because most people did not own a copy of Scripture. And so it was critical that they did not neglect the public reading of Scripture. The printing press had not been developed. And God admonishes the lector to read it. And in his reading it, he would be blessed. But by application, post-printing press, virtually everyone here today has a Bible in their lap. As you read it, you too will be blessed. There is a blessing in it. Let me ask some of you, when was the last time have you read the book of Revelation? Have you ever, from start to finish, read the book of Revelation? Why don't you turn off the TV this week and take 65 minutes and read through it from start to finish? God says there's a blessing. But the beatitude is not only to the reader, but also to the hearer. And because it is the Word of God, if you come with ears to hear, I mean really hear it, such that three hours from now you haven't forgotten what this sermon is all about when you're sitting on your front porch but you really come to hear it, you will be blessed. As you read it, as you hear it, it will move you to know that there is a sovereign God in heaven who is actually in control of this mess that we are in today. Listen, sometimes your kids, you know the words are going through their auditory canal, but you ask them, did you hear what I said? Are you listening to me? Sometimes my wife says that to me, you know. <laughs> It's not enough just to have heard, but he wants you to hear it. Some of you, your phone vibrates in church, and I see you pick it up, and you text somebody, and you're so distracted. Put that thing on airport mode. Unless you're a doctor or a police officer, and you've got to be called, I'll put it on airplane mode. Come here to worship the living God and to listen to his word. Give him your full attention today that you might, third, heed the things which are written in it. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Virtually wherever you go in the New Testament, prophetic doctrine is interwoven with an exhortation to do something with it. 
God doesn't want to make us smarter sinners. He wants to make us more like Jesus Christ. You should read this book, but you must also heed this book. And if you read this book and heed this book, there will be great blessing in your life. The book of Revelation is given to change us, to make us more like Jesus Christ. And with a sense of urgency, notice he says, for the time is near. Now, there are two words translated time in the New Testament. This is not the word that refers to like a clock or a calendar, but it's the word kairos that describes seasons. John is saying the season is near. The next great era of God's redemptive plan is close at hand. Why? Because the return of Christ has been imminent. It could happen at any moment. It could have happened in John's life's He believed, and he should have, as did the rest of the apostles, that Jesus could have come when they were alive. Understand there has never, ever, ever been in the history of the church, not since it began and was birthed on the day of Pentecost, a single prophecy that needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come and rapture or catch up his church. But the second coming of Christ that happened seven plus years after the rapture is prophecy driven. There's all kinds of prophecy that would need to be fulfilled. If it happened in the first century, then in the next seven plus years, Jesus would have fulfilled all the second coming prophecies and he would literally come to heaven. Now, how he would have done it, I don't know. Sometimes I thought, well, you know, the Antichrist is going to have worldwide control and be able, you can't buy or sell anything without his mark. How would they have done that? We know how they can do it electronically and otherwise today. How would they have done it in the first century? Maybe a tattoo. Um, in fact, maybe the Antichrist will use it. The way people use tattoos today, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a tattoo. I don't know how he'll do it, but I know he will do it. But the amazing thing is, is that in our lifetime. We are seeing literal, actual prophecy being fulfilled as it relates to the second coming, which tells me that the rapture of the church that precedes it is all that much closer. I mean, you look at the fact that Israel is a nation. People want to deny that. One popular speaker says, Israel is no different from Uganda. That is wrong. That is misrepresenting the living God and the prophecies that he gave and the promises that he made to the people of Israel. When you look at the moral climate of our day, like the days of Noah and the days of Lot, it is not by accident. You say, Pastor, do you believe what you are preaching this morning? Yes, I do. And I hope you do. And I may not have every detail correct as we work through the book of Revelation, but I can tell you this much. There is a life to live. There is a death to die. There is an eternity that you will face. And someday the stars in heaven will literally fall. The sun will go dark. The moon will turn blood red. And the shrieking and the moanings of the lost as they are resurrected before the living God will literally happen. And when the mountains are shaking and crumbling and the nations are tottering and the foundations of this word are trembling, you will spend eternity somewhere, either with the living God or without Him. Your soul is important to God Almighty and what you do with Jesus And the end will determine what God will do with you. You bow to him as Lord and Savior, and you have a place in heaven. You ignore him, and you will spend an eternity wishing that you had come to him. You may be here this morning listening through Facebook, live streaming through our 
own uh, web page. Maybe you're listening on a Search the Scriptures app. Maybe on television. Maybe on radio. Maybe you're in Graniteville, Hilton Head. I don't know. But God brought you here today for a reason. And somebody you needs to be saved. And you can be saved today because Jesus paid it all on his cross. And if you will call upon him in faith, he will make you ready for an eternity with him. Now, Father, thank you for your word. It's truth. You told me, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. And so as a pastor, you told me to preach the truth. And I've done that as best I know how today. And I pray that as we study this great revelation, that our hearts would be open to your word, that you would teach us the implications of all that is here, that when we are finished, whenever that happens, should Jesus tarry, that we will love him more fully and follow him more closely. Help someone today, Father, who's never received him as Lord. Help them to understand your invitation that whosoever will may come. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Help someone in simple, childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And help them never to be ashamed of it. Help us never to be ashamed. Help us in this week that is in front of us to care for the souls of men and women. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.